0: Hey folks, this is John, and you're listening to another episode of Skirt, a real horror show here on the FYIZ podcast feed. Now, this episode was originally going to kick off a season of Skirt for this spring, but uh, some things fell through and got pushed back and moved around. And though there will probably be more Skirt in your future, I wanted to go ahead and get this episode out as a kind of special. And it is very special because it marks the return of my good friend Polly Chattel to the show. If you've been listening, you will remember Polly as the author of The Occultists. Well, She's back with her book Shadow Days, which is a very intense psychological thriller that is creepy and violent and disturbing and also a lot of fun. Uh, It's available through Journalstone Publishing. Now, you can go to journalstone.com and buy it there. But I also think you could probably have it special ordered wherever you buy books. The important thing is buy it and read it. That said, you can listen to the first 20 minutes or so of this show, even if you haven't read the book, because they just go into theme and character and don't really spoil the plot. And in fact, they might whet your appetite. But it's very clearly delineated when we get into spoilers. So do not fear, you can listen to it anyway. And I really don't need to say much else. You know, let's just get to it. This is my conversation with the amazing Polly Chattel. The last time you were on this show, we were talking about The Occultists, which was your first book and a, a a dark fantasy, action-packed boys' adventure story. Right. And you expressed at that time that you would like for your next book to do something that was more exploratory of the psychological underpinnings of the characters. You said something about the interior life of the characters was something you wanted to depict more. And it seems like that's exactly what you've done with Shadow Days. So I want to hear a little about that. But I also know, and you mentioned in the afterword to the book, that uh, Shadow Days was originally a screenplay that you actually came close to producing before it it sort of was shelved, and then you you turned it into a book. So I I kind of want to know about what that perfect storm, how did that screenplay on the shelf, meet the writerly impulse to do something different uh, from the occultists.
1: The whole screenplay thing, what, you know, as 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 a lot of people know, I was a filmmaker uh, for, you know, for many years until I got frustrated with it, um, just because it, it, of all the money involved, you know, you've got to raise millions of dollars. And it's just a lot of work, like much of the work isn't even creative. I mean, you're looking for costuming, and you're looking for locations, and you're dealing with lawyers, and you're dealing with you know music rights, and you're dealing with other stuff. And I got kind of frustrated with that. I just wanted to go straight to the well of creativity and like stay there. And books, of course, are the best way to do that. That was sort of my first love. I was an English major in college and actually was wanting to be a novelist before the film thing came along. So I'm kind of returning back to that First dream, as it were, but yeah. So it was a screenplay, and it it had a lot to do with my family's life. My, uh, you know, sadly, uh, much of my family succumbed to paranoid schizophrenia, and um, me growing up in that environment traumatized the fuck out of me because it's like, what do you do? And so it was a personal thing for me. i like to I like to say that there's blood on the page. And there really is. I mean, this is this is some deep, dark family stuff that I had to tell this story one way or another. And so when the film project, it got optioned multiple times and it won awards, and it did all of this. and it and 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 uh, at one point, we were set to sign the contracts. and the night before they dropped out. And that was just when I, you know, I just kind of said, I'm done. So it's just a huge waste of time. And so I retooled it as a book. But like I said, my my real interest at this point was was writing interiority. Like, how do you get inside the head of somebody who is experiencing mental illness, but yet not alienate them, you know, if that makes any sense. I mean, you know, in the in the traditional world of mental illness, we're always on the outside. So how to go inside and create empathy while still showing her thought processes as jumbled and insane, uh, frankly. And so that was my personal little challenge there. But it was just one of those things where you got to do the research. On the other hand, as I wrote in the afterword in the book, you know, a... A story is not a message. I mean, we don't write messages. We write stories. So, of course, I kind of pumped up the drama and the blood and the violence because I like that stuff. It's fun, you know? And um, I, I I, felt like I had a primary um, responsibility to my readers first. In other words, the idea was to tell a good story first and then get preachy and get, you know, all about a paranoid schizophrenia later. Um and so hopefully it you know it's kind of a balancing act but hopefully I did both. I really wanted to create some sympathy for this main character who's having a hard time but on the other hand um she's doing some pretty awful things too. So it was a real fine line to balance on that on that level, you know.
0: Yeah, and and that's almost the trick of the novel I think uh, is like maintaining that perspective, keeping us dancing on the edge of wondering how much we can trust Melissa Uh, Her perspective, because it's very controlled what you're showing us. It's not first person, it's sort of over her shoulder. There can be power in breaking away from that perspective when you maintain it, but there can also be a lot of power in just sticking with it. So that even though we sort of feel like we're seeing the facts as they are seen by Melissa, we don't always know that we can trust her point of view. I think the term is called
1: like close third-person perspective. And I've seen movies recently that broke that. And it was really frustrating because like, for instance, in in one scene, we're really close to the main character and we don't know anything the main character doesn't know. So it's a mystery. We're finding out as the main character does. But what happens then is they cut away to the bad guy and show the bad guy. And it's like, well, you can do anything at that point because you've broken your own rules. You know, you can also cut away to the guy who could solve the problem if you wanted to, and you can cut away to the other guy who created the original problem. And you sort of lose yourself in this muddle of perspective. So I wanted to keep it very tight located on her. So yeah, she's in every scene. There's nothing that, that, um, we don't know that she doesn't know, you know? And so it's a, it's, it's kind of a tightly wound perspective. Um, to keep the whole time.
0: Well, I think you pulled it off well. And I think even though it might be off-putting to some readers who are expecting to really root for the hero of of a story from beginning to end, I think that uh, most fans of genre are familiar with this sort of flawed main character. Um, And I think as far as the mental illness goes, you never make it the kind of schlocky sort of treatment of it that people have seen in so many films. You always make it feel like Melissa would be having a, a, a tough time, even if it weren't for her her mental illness. But her mental illness is definitely coloring that perspective that we are chained to. I actually was looking around for people writing about the book and found someone on Goodreads who, who kind of summed up my thoughts pretty well. This is a uh, Goodreads user, Becky Spratford. She said, um, the reader never completely leaves her, talking about Melissa, the main character. Although if you step away from the book, you will question why you are still with her. And yet when you dive back in, those second thoughts disappear. That is hard to do. Um, And yeah, I just was nodding my head when I read that because I I think that is what you pull off here. This idea of when you're thinking about the book, you're going to be thinking, oh my gosh, Melissa is sweet. She's, She's this she's on this revenge mission and she's doing all these awful things and, and in some ways she could be seen as the villain of the book. And then when you read the book, you're right back in that perspective of kind of wishing her success as she conducts these home invasions and assaults, <laughs> because you want to find out what happens. She seems like she's the engine that's trying to take us towards the answers that we, we kind of seek as readers. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I agree with Becky Spratford. I think that is hard to do. And I think you pulled it off excellently.
1: Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, it's all in the perspective. I mean, think about a scenario of a person who's going to rob a convenience store. And if we start with the with the convenience store clerk and the and the robber bursts in, we're with the clerk. The clerk is our guy. And so we hope the clerk does what he needs to do and he survives and everybody's okay. But if you turn that around and you start with the robber outside on the on the on the on the sidewalk, trying to work up his courage to go inside, and then he bursts in. Suddenly, we're with the robbers. You know, it's a weird trick of writing. It, it's a it's a perspective shift that you can uh, use to your benefit. You know, and so you know, is as, as long as we can create some empathy with her, I think we're good. I mean, The Sopranos. I finished it recently. We talked about that a little bit, but you know, J- uh, Tony Soprano he loved animals he loved horses he loved those ducks the whole thing started with ducks in a swimming pool that's what sent him to therapy and um immediately we're hooked cuz hey man a guy that likes animals we like them you know right
0: you can put things in a script to make people root for a character and um and caring about animals is is probably the the biggest example of that but but caring for anybody caring for a sick relative uh um that sort of thing a, a hitman could brutally murder a family and then come home to his neighborhood and throw a candy bar to a poor kid on his block and we would think well maybe this guy's not so bad you know and 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 even if we know that trick is being worked on us it does kind of help to make an anti-heroic character more seductive
1: yeah well it, it you know it's one of those things that actors tell you it's an actor's trick there are no bad guys you know there are no there are no bad guys. Even even Darth Vader has his own motivation. He's doing it, he, you know, right. he's doing what he thinks is the right thing to do. And that's one of those tricks actors use to to bring sort of a humanity to their character. You know, they never play uh Hannibal Lecter as a bad guy. They play Hannibal Lecter as the hero of his own drama. So so once you kind of turn storytelling on its head like that, I think you can um Get away with a lot of stuff, you know? And and for Melissa, I mean, there's so much empathy. I mean, there's so much she's not in control of that you want her to get back at these bad guys, hopefully. You're invested in finding out how the story ends because you do feel like she was wronged And she's just looking for some payback. So it's pretty cool in that way. You can have your characters do some really horrible things. I mean, think of Walter White. I mean, we still loved Walter White at the end of things. So it's just, you know, it's one of those uh, storytelling tropes that if you start with a character, you make them sympathetic... You want to follow it through. And at the end of the day, you just want to tell a fun story that people are going to finish and 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 enjoy. And, it, you know, if you could put a little bit of, like, social commentary or something in there, that's cool. But mainly it's a story, and a story is to be enjoyed. And so that was really the the whole idea behind uh, the thrust of her character, you
0: know? Yeah, I even think that the, the, the forward momentum provided by those plot questions, it kind of gives us even more of a reason to feel for Melissa because we see that – though she's doing some pretty bad things. She's also in a very complex situation. I was thinking at times of the Movies of the Coen Brothers, uh, or even the the work of Michael McDowell, uh, though his books usually have a supernatural element to them. There is often that same thing you find in the Coen Brothers, or or, a, or a sort of a crime story like uh, *Shadow Days*, where it's human foibles run amok that are the the real monsters in the stories. It's like a combination of fate and fuck ups, and and so you you. You recognize that the characters are almost caught up in the, you know, things like greed and jealousy and bitterness and 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 vengefulness. Those are the those are the things that really trap the characters and doom the characters. And then also like the Cohen's and uh, Michael McDowell's books, um, you know, there's a there's a dark humor. We, we are allowed to find some of this funny. Not so much that violence is always a punchline, but it can be a form of release and comedy and and shock. And revulsion, they're all sort of married somewhere, uh, you know, deep in our psyches. I think the surprise element is important to all of those. Um, you sort of have to believe that anything can happen and it can happen to anybody.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you look back at the Coen Brothers movies or Joe R. Lansdale, have you read much of his stuff? I mean, a little bit. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's something about noir and black comedy that go together really well. You know, just the, the, um, the hopelessness of it all, you know. I think Noir really gets into that. Think of Kubrick's uh the killers, you know, at the end, the you know, they're trying to get the money and then in the end, all the money blows away. Or think of um treasure of the Sierra Madre, where at the end the uh the banditos scatter the you know the gold, which looks just like normal rocks, scatters it to the wind, and the whole thing was for naught, and they end up just laughing. The whole thing it ends with them just laughing because there is a sort of bleak laughter in the hopelessness of all things you know and that might be the the truest reaction to you know the human condition is just laughter we just have to laugh at it because there's you know there seems to be no meaning whatsoever it's often violent it's dark it's depraved and what can you do at the end of the day but just fucking laugh? And um, that's kind of where that humor comes from. There's something about noir uh, specifically that lends itself to that bleakness. The Coens are really great at the whole character thing. Remember in uh, in No Country for Old Men, the guy we're bonded with, we're like a little duck, kind of identifying with this character as our mommy. You know, this is our guy. And at the end of the movie. They cut him out of the movie without even showing his death. It signaled to us that the movie wasn't about a simple action-adventure scenario. It was about something bigger than that. And um, those guys are masters at that. So yeah, I mean, anytime you can sort of follow the Coen brothers, you know, and of course the Coen brothers are in a very established tradition of like Dashiell Hammett and those guys, Jim Thompson. I mean, there's a whole rich tradition of noir stories, very bleak funny noir stories going back into the 50s and the 40s and the 30s you know so it's really just continuing that 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 james m kane postman always rings twice kind of thing
0: you know anton Shagur by sight is that correct yes sir i know him every which way just how dangerous is he compared to what the bubonic plague he's bad enough you called me yeah, he's a psychopathic killer, but so what? I'm plenty of them around. seem pretty sure of yourself. You've led something of a charmed life, haven't you, Mr. Wells? In all honesty, I can't say the charm has had a whole lot to do with it. I was wondering. Yes. Could you validate my parking ticket? Attempted humor, I suppose. I'm sorry.
1: One of the most frustrating things about writing film is you always have a budget. Like, in other words, unless your film's a really big film, you're not going to have an ocean liner swallowed by a tidal wave. Right. This is, you don't have the budget. So, you have to think about another scenario that gets you where you want to go that's quote unquote cheap to film. And um, when I moved this to a novel, I threw all that out. I threw all that out. I had it. I, I, uh, I retooled the second half of the book. I changed locations. I went to uh, one of the biggest clubs in Birmingham, Alabama, and set the the you know the finale there. And. So I was able to just have my cake and eat it too, uh, plot-wise. Of course, the biggest thing that's different in writing other than uh, film is that, you know, in film you say, he walked through the door. You know, in novels or in fiction, in narrative fiction, you want to talk about them walking through the door and then how they felt about it and what they thought about it. I mean, the interiority is what a novel does so well. I mean, that's what narrative fiction brings to the table, is we can go inside their brains. So, I felt a real responsibility to sort of lose the screenplay and then move into a more interior space. I wanted to get inside her head and you know, explore what she was thinking, what she was feeling, how she felt about this and that. That kind of stuff reads you in reality, it 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 allows the mind's eye to kind of see what you're saying on the page. And it puts the reader in the moment a little bit more. So there's a thousand little details, you know, people fiddling with paper clips or something like that. You know, it just really brings the picture to life.
0: Well, the way you give us both her point of view and a, a kind of look at what's really going on at the same time made me think of something. It's a comedy device to have a sort of moment where a person is fantasizing maybe a little bit. Maybe we don't know how much they're fantasizing, but something happens and the person has like a big moment or it breaks into a musical sequence or they go to the party and everything, every, they're so cool. And then the camera occasionally cuts to the actual view and sort of says, no, this is what's actually happening. I mean, when it's deployed well, it's, an, it's a great gag. You didn't realize how in the head of the character you were. It's the difference between you've got headphones on and you, you're so into it and you're dancing and the song sounds great to you. And if someone were to walk into the room and see you with headphones on dancing around and hear you going, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's it's that. It's the, it's the fantasy versus the reality, and that makes me think of Melissa because of the, the times where we step back and we sort of are made painfully aware of of just the figure that she cuts when she enters into a room, and it can be kind of merciless. It's a spiral that this character goes on of sorts, uh, where by the end, it really is like, we know the ways in which she's credible, but I think that we followed her so much that we know why she's in this situation, but we recognize that when she comes into almost any situation, there's a question of why would anyone trust her. I mean maybe someone would seek help for her or try to help her in some way, but why would anyone like go along with her?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean there's an interesting technique in film called contrapuntal narration. It's a neat idea. It's basically like say you've got some, you know, gang members who are kicking a bum on the street and they're basically going to kill the bum by kicking him. And then the voiceover narration is Things were going great. And it's almost like this ironic, sardonic take on things, you know, like I couldn't believe how lucky I was when something really awful is happening. I really kind of dove into that technique in the screenplay a lot. You know, it's kind of funny because it's a big no-no in film to have a voiceover, which of course is the reason I immediately wanted to have a voiceover. It's kind of funny. My lead lady who um, was attached, she recorded this entire inner monologue for me that I said to some really cool uh Filmed images. And it was great. I loved it. It was like, it's like this little uh art piece, this little abstract art piece of a woman who's having this very confused internal dialogue, but we're seeing like sunsets and we're seeing parking lots and highways and it's just a really interesting, like, juxtaposition. You know, it's not on the nose. Like, on the nose would be something like, I felt horrible as you see somebody getting killed, you know? Right. That's what I did in the book, is I wanted to play with it in her own self-conception. She knew what was going on, though. Like, you know, in terms of the finale, as she descends and spirals further and further, even her clothes kind of betray her. At the end of the thing, she's wearing, like, a too big Football jersey and tights, and Mm -hmm. she's pissing on herself. And so it's, it's, you know, it's kind of this uh, weird dance between the reality and the perceived reality.
0: Well, for any listeners who haven't read the book, I hope that's enough enticement because I think this is about the time where we will move on to more spoilery territory. Polly, before we do that, is there anything you would like to say? I'm big
1: on social media, and I'm, you know, I'm really careful to kind of place myself in the writer's community on social media. I love those guys. We have a lot of fun. But I did notice that a lot of them, you know, and me too, we all view like film as like the big thing on the hill. There's just so much money and so many eyeballs and so much communal commentary on film that we all want to be filmmakers. Everybody wants to be a showrunner. But, you know, at the same time, it's it's fun to do books because books are so good at that psychological thing. I mean, they are so good at what's going on in your head that they're not a secondary art form by any means. I mean, I would even put them, you know, above film. I think I think at one point Stephen King was asked the question of like, hey, they they ruined your books, you know, Hollywood ruined your books. And he was like, no, they're all right there on the shelf. They're great. Yeah. <laughs> so so you know it's the thing the whole idea of aspiring to film i think is is sort of a mistake i mean if anything we should aspire to be great storytellers that tell great stories you know and and if we get a nice fat paycheck from hollywood that's okay too hey john let me put out my cat if you don't mind i'm sorry okay. i've got like three animals gathered around me here it just
0: looked like you were kind of having a socratic dialogue so
1: just hang on one second i'll leave the thing running hang on yeah come on guys I've got a, I've got cats and dogs. <laughs>
0: Come on. Okay, now we can start spoiling it. Uh, one of the things I have to know a little bit more about, and, and maybe I just have uh, insider info, I guess. But I know there was a film project that you have told me about, where you were working with the great actor Robert Longstreet about playing a part. And I've put together that that was this film, or that it was the film that became the book Shadow Days. But it was the he was he was attached to be part of the the film version that never happened of this book. And um, so, if that's correct. Who was Robert Longstreet going to play in this? You know already, don't you? I, I think it would be Moreau. That's right. Okay. All right.
1: He was awesome because when he read the screenplay, he, we, he and I talked on the phone and he was like, you know, he actually criticized it. He's like, I need something more from this guy. And I was like, what does that mean? And he's like, I need, I need him to go around her mom's house and water the plants or to do these little details that, of course, bring characters to life and I mean, in that moment, he was a better writer than me because he was giving me, like, character notes on how to improve my own character. And he was fucking right. And I used it in the book. I used Robert Longstreet's idea... Of uh, not watering mm-hmm. the plants is you know uh, her mom never watered the plants and they're almost dead.
0: So Longstreet was going to be uh, Moreau. So let's talk about who Moreau is, just in case someone is listening who didn't read the book and who doesn't care about spoilers for some reason. I would love to hear your description of Moreau anyway, because Moreau is such a like a a, 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 a monster of sorts, but also he's a just a regular guy in other ways.
1: Again, getting back to that actor's portrayal of bad guys, that they're you know you know they're human too and. So I wrote this long backstory of him. He's like a veteran. He, you know, he was in the Gulf Wars. So he's he's you know he's very rough around the edges, but he may he's got nice teeth. So he may have come from money. Who knows? He may have had his teeth worked on a lot when he was a kid. But yeah, he's kind of funny too. I mean, he's got this wry sense of humor that if you were in a different situation, you might actually like to have a beer with the guy. You know, humans are weird like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen the most charming assholes and the most stilted nice people in the world. And so I think one of the, the challenges of being a writer is to sort of capture our humanity in its full spectrum. So occasionally he makes a joke and it's not unfunny. You know, he's a nice guy sometimes. He just kind of found himself on the wrong side of things. He's got his own issues. He, you know, I mentioned he's got, you know, really bad, painful acne scars and he's fat and he's heavy. So he probably has some kind of emotional sort of baggage with that. But at the end of the day, he's just a guy. So you try to humanize him, um, especially at the end, like after his threat has been neutralized. You kind of bring back his humanity, and you see, you know, you know the sadness. Things came to this point because you could have been friends, and you know, in another context, it's bittersweet all around. Like you kind of like the guy, but he's a dick, and our hero is a dick, but you kind of like her, you know. And it 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 really is applying that principle all the way through. Like even her brother, her troubled brother. I mean, you feel sorry for the guy. He's a bully. He's a violent man. But he's also just a a boy who had something really awful happen to him, and he went the wrong way. And so I think that's important, you know, is to find those internal contradictions in people. And the bad guys are nice, and the nice guys are bad. Right. So that's what really interests me.
0: Well, I mean, it's an interesting thing that you mentioned, because we talk about Moreau. Moreau is a presence throughout the story, but he, we really don't know Moreau. We don't know that's who we're talking about until late in the story. So there is a, there is a I now I can say this, I can say home invasion we can talk about that moment a little without it being, you know, worried about ruining it for people. But it's sort of like a shock you don't expect to come that early in the story. I've been sort of trained by these sort of books to, to feel like we're still in the place setting portion of the story. Slow burn. We've already learned that what seems like it's going to be the tragedy that is going to set this character off on the wrong path, perhaps. We already have learned that she she as a nurse accidentally Uh, killed a a baby by giving them the wrong medicine. And um, that that ruined her career and she's kind of clawed her way back and she's sort of putting herself together at this, it's a clinic. It's not uh, the same thing she once had, but she can probably, you know, theoretically she could while away the next few decades being a little cubicle worker and, you know, at this clinic and that would be that. Keeping her head down, so to speak. You know what I mean? And and you sort of think that that's maybe what she hopes for for herself is to sort of quietly live a life of nothingness because she feels like after this horrible thing she did, she doesn't deserve it. And and then very quickly, uh, her support system or a big part of her support system is completely taken out when, or maybe even people she has to support a little bit, but her mother and uh, her, her mentally ill brother are both murdered in a home invasion, and it happens in front of her. We spend maybe a few pages where it seems like she has this sort of uh, uh, complacent life, uh, of comfort with this very nice man named Jack who uh, we can tell from the beginning kind of bores her and maybe that's what she likes about him. But we we like Jack. I mean, like, w- we actually feel a little bit like her over-the-shoulder narration. It's a little unkind to Jack.
1: Yeah, I think she calls him a pussy at one point.
0: And again, that's another hint as to this character's point of view is that she is a little bit like she's going to zero in on the worst details <laughs> about everything.
1: Yeah, no, I just wanted to, you know, that slow burn is a is a nice tried and true way to kind of create some tension. You want your appetizer, then you want your meal, then you want your dessert. But sometimes it's more fun to mix that up and just to hit, just to wow them almost right away, and to to cut the rug out from under your viewers or your readers. So yeah, so I went I went to the darkness right away and hopefully by that time you're hooked. It was a hard scene to write, just all the different perspectives going on and kind of blocking out what four people or six people or actually seven people are doing at any given time and which one takes precedence over the other. And, you know, even the guy that her first victim, you like the guy. He's a nice guy. He's a good fucking dad. You really want to work with these contradictions. And In the contradictions is the humanity, and in the humanity is the good storytelling. I just wanted to like, you know, the old cliche, you you spend a little time uh, kind of investing your readers in your characters, and then you send your characters through hell. I was at South by Southwest, you know, a few years ago, and they were talking about a genre of film called Smart Popcorn which I always, always love that term because it's, you know, I love genre, but I love literature. So I kind of see myself as like one foot in genre and one foot in like literary fiction. And smart popcorn hits it right on the on the nose. I mean, think of a film like Drive, for instance, where it's it's exciting, it's fun. You can watch it as an action film, but there's a lot more going on there. That's what I was chasing was smart popcorn.
0: I wanted a noir story that had meat on its bones. There's another thing I'm wondering about, and it connects to character and plot, but it's a, it's a thing with the chapter names. I noticed after, uh, there was a run of chapters, one called Noah, one called Seth, one called Teddy, and one called Jack. And in each of those chapters, the character who has that chapter named after them is either dead by the time their chapter is over or or as it begins. And I was just wondering how intentional was that given that then the next chapter is called Gordy. And that kind of... He seems to break the curse, but then there are questions about what really happened to Gordy in his chapter, and then Mimi is another character that doesn't fare well, and then Victor is a character that gets a chapter that we like and we don't want to see anything bad happen to. I just wondered, were you kind of playing with the readers in that way, uh, is or did I just read into that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you want to keep the reader on his toes, on her toes, and um, you want to play with the with the 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 stuff of fiction. Like my first book you know the occultist was was you know sort of mannered it, it was it was almost as if it had been written back in the time it took place in so um i wanted to mix that up and kind of bring almost a postmodern immediacy to the next book and uh yeah so that was all part of it and and of course you know on Gordy's chapter does he really get away
0: you later realize wait a minute maybe maybe he was yet another person who had an in memoriam chapter name.
1: Let's just say if you go back to his scene in the in the house with his grandmother, if you count the bullets, if you count the gunshots, right. you might be
0: surprised, you know. Well, even Melissa questions Gordy's existence later in the story. Uh when she just realizes, "Oh, wait a minute. He hasn't really been interacting with people. Has anyone really seen Gordy but me?" And it, it, it raises some really dark questions about what really happened at his house and and shortly after. Yeah, well, if you think
1: about in the sixth sense with Bruce Willis, you know, how his ghostly character never interacted. And you really only, in the second viewing, do you put it back together, you know? And it's a little bit like that. There's little specific clues that work better in hindsight than they do when you're reading it. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's like you're dealing with this person with this uh, paranoid schizophrenia mindset. So... You know, it was important to me not to have it be like there's faces leering at her from the walls or, you know, stuff that was just blatantly unrealistic. I wanted to kind of keep it a little grounded.
0: There are voices that she hears, but it's not these sort of cartoony alternate personas that pop up. You don't use the mental illness to say... This is why she's doing these awful things. You just say like, oh, it's another thing that complicates her story is that while she's dealing with this real-life crime thriller that she's caught herself in, again, it's the horror of not knowing what's real that you make so palpable, and it's not something that necessarily vilifies her. And in fact, it makes us root for her that we see that she's struggling. I would say there's one major mystery at the end of the story, and I think that you leave it where people can decide for themselves um, how deliberate it was that she... Killed the baby. Like, I think that that is that that's lurking just outside, at least for me, in two reads. I didn't find one detail that made it absolutely clear that she was being that she that it truly was an accident or not. But I, you know, I think that that's of all the things that you leave vague. I think that's the best thing to leave vague because the timeline uh, uh, of what happened before that is very clear. Like, it's a much more complicated thing than we thought was going on. Right blocking a memory is that another symptom of of schizophrenia because it does seem as though she's at least from the reader we, there's a major event that is revealed to us in the final scene that that uh, is melissa hiding that from herself too is that the way that works
1: yeah i mean there's a lot of that going on i mean i mean if you think of um memento is another big signpost for this project and that you know, only at the end is it revealed that this guy is like this Terminator assassin who's killing random people due to the, his own misaligned tape playing in his head. Mm-hmm. So it was part of that. You want to, you know, you want to ask who's the real monster here? Is she actually, in fact, killing the wrong
0: people? In that final scene, when she confronts Carrie, the father of the of the boy whose death she's responsible for, that we've been sort of mostly believing is an accident. But in that scene, information comes out that changes our understanding of of the story, but it seems like it's hitting her like a ton of bricks too. And I I honestly, I feel like that was, that's a trick that could have felt like, what? You can't do that. You can't just bring something in at the end. But I think you thread the needle. Like, I think when you build a mystery and you build a mystery around something, I don't know. I feel like that's one of those things where it can feel earned. It can feel like, okay, that's the piece of information that only this person really... It's like, why now? Why is this... like? It's very clear why this person is telling this piece of information in this moment. It doesn't feel like often happens... Like when you get to the end and a character just explains the story to somebody and you say, well, couldn't you have explained that to them earlier? Or right. <laughs> couldn't the writer have made that, that conclusion more interesting? This feel, is a little different. This is like don't you realize what you've been doing? This is that shot to outside the character where we're actually seeing a a wider view of what they've been doing than we've been granted thus far. And I think rather rather than feeling like a cheap trick or a gimmick, in this case, you make it feel like it's a climactic moment. but it still could have fall, you know. It could have fallen on its face and felt like, "How dare you bring this information in in the last chapter?" Essentially, that that makes the whole thing fit together,
1: right? Like the old James Bond cliche of the bad guy explaining everything right before he kills James Bond. He takes right. an extra fifteen minutes to give him the final rundown. No, it's just, I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, the human brain is fucked up, man. I've known people who've had. Traumatic episodes that have just they've blanked them out. You know, they they I mean, that's a thing. I've seen it in my own life. I've actually almost even experienced it in my own life in my own brain. um, Where just, you know, you have something that's really horrible and triggering and as a as a measure of self-protection, you block it out. And um, I don't want to get too personal here with my family and stuff, but I've had some of them, you know, be really horrible People And then later say they had no memory of it whatsoever. So that was just one of the things that was like, a you know, in the stew. And I knew I had to reveal it at the end. You know, it's one of those things where the, you know, the writer needs to know the whole story, even though the characters don't. You have to kind of put together the piece of what's really going on here, even though you're only giving the readers pieces of it. And so the choice becomes, do I reveal the whole puzzle or do I leave it in pieces and let the reader figure it out for themselves? And as much as I love sort of postmodern literary fiction where it's all hints and and visions and nothing is for certain, I felt like it would have done the reader a disservice had I not gone all the way, explained the whole ruse, all the way to the bottom of the of the trick, so to speak and and say what happened here like what is going on here like what what exactly happened between these two people so it was one of those things where um you just you know you know again i drew from uh my research in in uh schizophrenia and also a lot of it came from like haunting uh chat rooms and reddit subreddits and things like that because you would just see like, oh, the voices are back today and they're telling me how fat and ugly I am, or the voices are back today and they're spouting racist stuff. I mean, this happens. It's it's sort of like your, your own angry id in oral hallucination form. And there's a lot of race in the book. I don't know how much people have picked up on that, but I go way into detail about this black maid she had and There's a black and white party at the end and everything is very uh, race-based, you know, at least we refer to it. So there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle. And the big question is how much do you want to give it to them or how much do you want them to figure out for themselves? And. Me being kind of a person of average intelligence, I like my meat and potatoes, you know, I want to know what happened. So, you know, it's kind of a nice way to tell a story and to sum it all up. And sometimes you wrap it up and sometimes you don't.
0: Yeah, as a reader, I like to have the materials in front of me to make an informed guess. That's not just a complete grasping in the dark kind of guess. But, I, you know, you don't want it to be completely spelled out. Am I correct in assuming, though, that at the end of this book, we are meant to wonder whether whether Melissa deliberately killed Joshua James? That's kind of the big mystery. In
1: my mind, there's two main mysteries in the book, whether Gordy was actually with her the whole time and whether she actually did that. And, you know, the clues are in there, I think. I mean, but a lot of the perceptions that she has, they're both filtered through her specific character. And some of them are just writerly details that I notice and that I glommed onto and wanted to just go ahead and put them in there anyway, you know. And the idea is to bring those into the story and and let them infuse the story, but also not commit. I think I think like the non-committal part is important because it's just like we don't commit as you know as far as as the baby at the end, did she kill the baby or not? We didn't commit. And there's a reason for that, you know. I mean, I think the reader wants to bring his or her perspective too and you know and sort of commit each person commits for themselves. You sort of set up a situation and then let people interpret it as they as they may, where basically it's like you really don't know what exactly is happening, but here's what I feel happened. And that feeling of what happened is the most important part. I mean, it's like when Tony Soprano got killed. Was he really killed or what? And it's like, you know, you know the actors are like, I don't know. They called cut and I went home.
0: Yeah. Well, I was thinking about that in relation to this, too, just what you show and what you don't show. And the the screenplay versus the book, were there ever things that were maybe depicted on screen that you changed for the book? Like for instance, one of the most gruesome things, if not the most gruesome thing that happens in this book is what happens to Jack. And that's kind of off screen, so to speak. It's between chapters um, or between scenes. Uh, was that ever something you were interested in depicting in the movie? Was that ever like, cause it seems like it would be a horrible scene to watch, but it also seems like the kind of stuff that people uh, put in movies to make us all feel terrible while watching them. It always
1: happened off screen. It did. I mean, I really disagree and just hate uh, torture porn in films. I really dislike it. And if Mm -hmm. I would have shown that it would have been uncomfortably close to torture porn, like there's some writers out there who are really good at that sort of vicious, vicious killing thing. Like, I guess, uh, Jack Ketchum. Have you ever read Jack Ketchum?
0: Uh, a little bit, yes.
1: He's his pretty intense, you know, and it's, yeah. it's it's almost like too intense. It's too much, too much not left to the imagination. And so, I, I you know, I, I just thought it was better to be a little discreet about that. I'm more interested in the in the mental aspect of things than I am in the the lurid. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you have to bring the lurid in to kind of set the the mood or you know, make a point, but you don't live there. You don't live in that in in you know, in that lurid thing. And so I just wanted to kind of like show that happen and get in and get out. And uh but it was it was really horrible for Jack. And I did want it to be over the top. I wanted it to not be this polite little murder, but this was something really horrible that that just ignited a fire inside of her, you know. Um I mean I wanted almost um to have like a heavy metal soundtrack and to have the font for the movie be in this like Germanic heavy metal lettering and stuff. I wanted to bring this sort of punch-to-the-chest aspect to things. So that's why we open with such a violent crime. And halfway through, there's there's more violent crime. And so, yeah, I mean, it's really meant to kind of jar the reader. But any sort of muddiness in there, you know, symbolism-wise, is is good, you know? I mean, that's what art does, is you, is you put a little splash of color on one side, and one person says, oh, my God, this symbolizes blood. And the other person's like, I don't see that at all. It symbolizes fertility and... That's really what art is, you know, it's just, it's playing with these symbols and playing with these events, juggling them and letting kind of everybody figure it out for themselves. And my interpretation may be different than yours. I actually like a lot of the characters in there. Even even the guy, Teddy, I kind of made a, a thing about how handsome he was. He's a good looking guy. Mm-hmm. It's my thing to humanize the monstrous and monstronize the, the human, but also to ground the symbols in reality and to symbolize the grounded stuff, too, you know? It's it's pushing and pulling either way, which is uh, the most interesting thing, I think.
0: Well, I mean, when you think about it, once Teddy and Seth are gone, then she's got more blood on her hands, or at least as much, by the time she's halfway done with her rampage, you know? And it's, it's, it's Gordy or imagined Gordy that makes that clear to her. So, I mean, if that is Gordy and if Gordy isn't a a construct, then that's her own subconscious sort of telling her, look at yourself, look at what you've done compared to them at this point, you know? And then what happens to Mimi? Like, you could say she kind of brings it on herself, but at the same time, what happens to her is truly horrible. She's she's She doesn't deserve what happens to her. I mean, we know that there was no intention to kill her until she pulled a gun, but we can't expect Mimi to have known that. So she's like a, she's like one of the tragic victims of this. But even, you know, it just keeps racking up all this human misery and who's at the center of it. It's a little bit like that. It's like a really extreme version of that thing where if you run into one asshole... That day, maybe you just ran into an asshole. But if you run into 15 assholes every day, maybe you're the asshole, you know? It's a little bit like Melissa. It's like, she's got that protagonist privilege we grant her because we're with her. You know, again, I think we're still with her up to the end. But it also is very sad. You know, like, the, the nothing good came of this. It's a little bit like uh, the end of Fargo when Frances McDormand is basically saying, and for what? You know, like, what was this... What was this all about? Yeah, or or again Memento, the classic unreliable
1: narrator. He's unreliable even to himself. It
0: is true that she gets kind of turned into a a killing machine by circumstance in, in a different but similar way to the Memento character.
1: I like the idea that she was this she's this young, you know, you know, physically frail and mentally frail woman and she's pitting herself against this you know, literal mob of killers, and she's doing okay. You know, she's holding her own,
0: which I thought was a lot of fun. When she gets the, she gets Teddy, I believe, with the ice pick. She's like a mob assassin. It's like quick stabs. I don't know. It, it, it's almost like there's a, I think of it like Jason Bourne or something, where it's like a character has some kind of secret training that they don't know about that's like awakened within them. You don't quite go that far, but it is like there's this. There's this dark avenging spirit to her that is awakened. Here's a person who's well beyond the point of no return, very early in the story, and it's you're just kind of it's a it's like a grim march. In fact, it's so grim that it really stands out when she encounters Victor, who not only does he have a chapter named after him and survive it, but he's just a good person like he he even is smart enough about it to say I'm not going to get involved in whatever you got going on lady but I'm not going to be cruel I'm gonna help if I can
1: yeah well I mean you want to bring the fullness of humanity to the you know you know to whatever project you're working on there's kindness in the world too you know um it just it just really broadens the range of the whole spectrum to show the the light and the dark and and he's
0: a nice guy you know he's one of those nice guys right and it almost seems like according to the rules of this world he shouldn't make it out like this is a kind of a nightmare world of 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 uh, of crime and punishment
1: you know again everything is plausible i mean what i did really was go through a lot of um i researched a lot of newspaper articles that had you know rogue nurses there's a shit ton of rogue nurses out there there's a shit ton of home invasions there's a shit ton of uh people that get killed in their homes you know and So a lot of it's just ripped from the headlines, you know? There's nothing unusual about it. It's sadly commonplace, you know? And so, uh, you know, it's, it's really a story about a person at the end of the day. It's a story about Melissa and who she is and what she is and how we feel about that in the end. Some of us go, oh, this is repellent. I can't stand it. Other people are like, I was intrigued the whole time.
0: Well, there is a a more facile and maybe more mainstream version of this story that would end with her kind of, you know, walking out and lighting a cigarette and saying, fuck everybody. Um, and I think what you did here is more satisfying. It's really ultimately playing with that tension. Like,
1: do you like this person? Do you not like this person? Where do you stand? Are you behind her? Are you happy the way things ended at the end? You know, those are the questions that are the more interesting questions, I think.
0: So, with that in mind, uh what's next? If if finishing the occultists made you want to write something that delved more into the psychology of the characters, what does finishing Shadow Days make you want to do?
1: You know, it's funny that you say that because I had a little bit of a snafu. For a year and a half, I've been working on a huge YA fantasy trilogy just a straight up fantasy but I kind of crashed on it um I had to put it down for a little while because my my inner instincts just really want to go literary I'm all about the, the you playing with language and playing with perspective and why a you kind of have to get rid of that you know and just it's it's almost pure story which of course I can do story all day long but um it was really hard for me to put away that sort of l- all, you know, all the literary stylings and i couldn't honestly tell whether the story was any good or not i mean the language was so simple and elementary and you know, it was a situation of this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. I think I made a joke to you a while ago of like, they walk around a corner and there's a mummy. They walk further down and there's a vampire, you know, and it just, <laughs> it seemed to lack a sort of inner cohesion, but there's still things I like about it. So i put it aside for a little while and I'm um, just going to work on some stories. And my goal is to do one story a month, which means by the end of a year, I'll have my own uh, collection. And um, I'm at the point now where people are now coming to me and asking me if if I have any stories that they can publish so I'm writing these for already considered publication which is really great
0: I'm sure you know this but from a person who loves reading all this fiction you know like that's like a point of arrival when someone starts popping up in collections like all all my favorite horror horror writers of recent years uh, Laird Barron Gemma Files Sarah Reed um, uh, Nathan Ballingrad like these are names that start popping up in these collections and that starts bolstering the other names on the collection and then you check out their work. I don't know. It's like, there's something really special happening in the the horror fiction community. It's not like quality control is not part of it, but there is a general sort of support system that really seems like there's a lot of really cool writers that are getting off on each other's stuff in a major way. So I can't wait to see short fiction from you because I feel like that's where you get to experiment and play and you only have to sustain it for Uh, 10 pages or 40 pages or whatever. You don't have to build this huge construction. So it allows you to be like more playful in a way or more experimental. So I I hope uh, I hope to see some of that stuff soon.
1: Yeah, it's great. You know, as a filmmaker, I was always the person who instead of doing short films, I did features because one of the reasons is you can monetize a feature. You can actually make money off of selling your movie, rather than a short film, which may play a few festivals or whatever. So I kind of really enjoyed my status as a feature filmmaker, as opposed to a short filmmaker. That translated in novels. I wrote a novel, then I wrote another novel. Other people are, are you know, working on stories. And, um... But then it happened to me that my novel wasn't able to be finished. So uh, I joined the ranks of the proud short story and short film uh, (laughs) filmmakers. And so I have to get off my little high horse about that and uh, join the rest of humanity. But yeah, no, it's great. I mean, the horror community is so, I mean, they're really nice people. They feel like they're people who have worked out their demons on the page. So they're actually really cool. And occasionally you'll get the, the sexist, transphobic, racist asshole. But usually they're really nice, well-adjusted people who um are turning out great work, you know. The hard part about the writing community is there's so little uh money in writing that a lot of us are struggling. Yeah. You know, I'm 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 a little older and I've got a, you know, pretty sweet gig and my wife's got a sweet gig. So we're doing okay, but I'm just I feel for a lot of the writing community because they're struggling because frankly even novels unless you're above ground making big sales you're not making a lot of money you know even great writers i could name some names are teaching you know they they've just you know like the idea that they could write full time is just off the table and it's just it's a little disappointing to see that because there's so many talented people out there and they could their books should be optioned and they should be showrunners and they should be doing their own thing and it's just it's kind of sad to see them uh, struggling financially, you know?
0: You know, it makes me wonder how many people are actually reading new fiction by new authors. I know people are reading like classic books and it seems like a lot of people read nonfiction and a lot of people, of course, read you know, on the internet and and articles and that kind of stuff. But, I, you know, sometimes I wonder about that, just the novel itself. Like, is it is it, as an art form, kind of has it had its day? The same way I wonder about, like, the album when it comes to music. When I was growing up, that just seemed like the gold standard. Everybody wants their songs on an album. And now, it's not like it's completely irrelevant, but it's increasingly so.
1: The novel has had a relatively short existence. It was, it you know, it came about at a certain place and a certain time, and and maybe other forms have eclipsed it who knows but we all still love our Stephen King we still love our John Irving we love our Michael Chabon we love these guys and so i have a feeling there's always going to be novels but the readership is definitely we're 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 all we're all clawing for more readers definitely and sometimes there's a little sense of hopelessness because you know your friends are going out for dinner and you're going to stay home and work on a story and you're not sure how many people are actually going to read the story and you're wondering why am i doing this why am i working so hard and pinning all my hopes on something that probably if it's read or downloaded it might be downloaded 10 or 12 times at the uh, you know at the extreme end so it's it's a little frustrating but you know, that's one of the things I get into is it's worth doing for its own sake. It makes you smarter, it makes you more human, it makes you more healthy, I think. Yeah, I'd lose my mind
0: if I didn't have some kind of outlet.
1: The impulse to create is so strong among a lot of people. It's strong in you. I see in you, you're you're writing and you're making music. And and for those people out there who don't know, John was an actor in a movie that was really good. It was awesome.
0: (laughs) Oh, you're talking about the Electric Heartbreaker? Uh,
1: I forget the name of it. Um, You started as a musician. Yes,
0: yes. That's the Electric Heartbreaker. It's wonderful. I loved it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, again, we growing up in the same town even, you you know that we talked about this last time about the sort of the value of creativity and how it is sort of like a, a lifeline if you're in a in a place that's where you might feel like an odd fit. It's not even like you're in a bad place. You just might be an odd fit for it. And so that is a bit of an escape. And you find those friendships through that stuff. And I still find that I'm much more likely to have sort of a, like my friendships all, all have this, oh, you've got a washboard? Well, I've got a kazoo. Let's put on a show. You know, it's like, there's this weird sort of desire. So if I meet someone and they have an interesting thing, an instrument they play or something that I know that they did, I'm instantly going like, oh, I feel like I have more to talk. To this person, about so it is a little bit of like a, almost a defect of the brain that you're constantly. I have to have something to work on, otherwise I'll just be constantly drumming up possible things to work on. I
1: mean, I mean, if you think about it, the you know the need for self-expression goes deep. I mean, we're always trying to bring the inner into the outer, you know, and I think I think that's what art is 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 a shared experience, and so hopefully people will read it or listen or watch. And um, it's hard these days because the markets are so saturated. There's a lot of writers, there's a lot of filmmakers, there's a lot of musicians. Um, The hard part is getting your work noticed. But if you can get noticed, you're doing great, you know? So I just want to... Say to all the artists out there, keep it up
0: and keep going. Well, that feels like a really good place to leave this conversation. Where can people find you online, Polly, if they want to know more, especially if they want to know when one of these short stories is going to pop up?
1: Uh, I have a website. Uh, um, it's P O L L Y S C H A T T E L P-O-L-L-Y-S-C-H-A-T-T-E-L.com. But I'm pretty busy on Facebook as well, social media. Um, but I'm out there, you know. I'll I'll be around. I'll be in the ether. I'm old, man. I don't give a shit anymore. <laughs> I'm just having fun at this point, you know.
0: Well, thank you so much. This is fun, and I hope that every time you put out a major work, we get a chance to catch up like this because this is a this is a very great thing to finish a book. I really enjoy, and then get to pick the brain at the person that wrote it. That's an amazing gift. And also, it seems to be when you and I get a chance to talk at length is uh, when one of us when one of us makes something major. Well,
1: thank you, John. I mean. You your 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 podcast and your interviewing is just amazing. I mean, you're one of the best interviewers out there. You ask the most intelligent questions, you have the best conversations, whether it's music, whether it's skirt, whether whatever it is, it's just great. So I I you know I just appreciate you so much.
0: Well, that, that means so much coming from you because you know it's, it's a it's a likewise kind of thing. Cool. Can I say one more thing? Yes. And if it's too nice, I'll just edit it out.
1: For anybody out there who doesn't know, John is also a writer. So let's bug John. To get to his computer and (laughs) and get going with his
0: writing he's really great oh stop i'm leaving this in though and that's that i hope you all enjoyed it as much as you ought to have just a quick note on the music in this episode it has been stolen from the movies the opening music was by miklos roja it's the score from the killers In the middle, you heard a little bit of Carter Burwell's score for No Country for Old Men. And under me right now, you are hearing music from The Postman Always Rings Twice by George Baseman or George Bassman. I'm not sure which. As for Skeart, you can find more episodes of this show and others like it on the FYIZ podcast feed. Just look for FYIZ on your favorite podcatcher app and uh, you should be good. So more soon. But for now, I think we should get out of here.